Amen. You may be seated. We are starting a new series, a new series that's going to be a little different. It's called 200 Proof. And uh, the reason I called it 200 Proof is originally I told people I was going to call it 100 Proof with the idea being that uh, it was something that would knock your socks off or something you, uh, you, you know, beyond your tasting ability. But I thought, you know, we've got so many Presbyterians and Episcopal coming to church here now, they might have tried 100 Proof. So I was going with 200 Proof. Uh, for something that is beyond that you have tried that may knock your socks off. Because we're going to talk about some, some topics that are being discussed in the public square, some things that are going on in our culture today. And, and more importantly, we're going to talk about how we as Christians are supposed to respond, how we as Christians are called to be light in the midst of that darkness. And so I hope you'll join us. If you have to miss a couple of weeks, then uh, you can catch up on our podcast page as well or get a, a CD sent to you. Uh, but we're going to talk about some interesting things in the days ahead. And this morning, basically, I'm just going to give you some introduction. I'm going to lay some groundwork for where we're going. But I want to ask you some very important questions as we get started. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to First uh, Peter. I know uh, Matthew is in your order of service, and so I'm not going to have you turn to that, and you can read along with that later, but turn to First Peter chapter 3. I don't want you to keep your finger there, as we'll come back to it in just a moment. On June 26th of this year, in the Obergefell versus Hodges case, the Supreme Court of the United States decided in a 5-4 to four decision that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantees and requires that states must issue marriage license to two people of the same sex. That same guaranteeing contract demands that all states must recognize marriages that have taken place in other states. And for the first time in the United States of America, it was codified into law that marriage is no longer defined as being between a man and a woman. In July of this summer, the Center for Medical Progress began releasing the first of what turned out to be 10 undercover videos that proved that Planned Parenthood, which is the nation's largest abortion provider, was selling aborted fetal tissues along with many other uh, unexcusable and inexplainable practices. And the videos, while they were released, were, were mainly ignored in our nation or really excused or downplayed or justified. And just this week, matter of fact, the U.S. Congress of the United States with a Republican uh, majority approved a budget that continues to provide federal funds to this organization. In 2013 and 2014, Planned Parenthood committed over 327,000 abortions and received over a half a billion, that's with B, dollars from our state and federal government. All the while having a profit of over $127 million with over $1.5 billion in assets. Last spring, George Gallup's research industry, Barna, George Barna's research industry, released a national poll that said for the first time, those that identify themselves as Christian in our nation has fallen to less than 70%. Now, that may sound good to you, but you need to realize that just seven years ago, it was at 78%. And just in 1981, 91% of the United States of America claimed to be Christians. What was very interesting is if you go and you look at those numbers of those that claiming to be Christians, 21% claimed to be a part of the evangelical churches, Protestant churches. 20% 
claim to be a part of Catholic churches. But at the second place, at, at 20.8%, was those that identify themselves as nuns or not having any religious or church affiliation. They, they say they're Christian, but they're not involved in any churches. And that is astounding because just eight years ago, that number was at 12%. So it's almost doubled. If you look around at what's going on in our country, if you partner that with the decline in church attendance we're seeing, with the decline in baptisms, the decline in conversions, many suggest that the United States of America, which right now is considered the largest Christian nation in the world, is about to begin to go through the progress of becoming a post-Christian nation, much like what happened to Europe in the last 20 years. And in the days ahead, instead of being a Christian nation, we will be in a post-Christian culture. If you look what's going on around the world in the last year, we have seen Christian martyrdom, persecution, and killing rise to an all-time high, unprecedented in modern history. Christians are being killed around the world. Just this last week, a deranged man went into an Oregon community college, took out a gun, several guns, and began to kill nine people between the ages of 18 and 67 teachers, adults, students, wounding more than 20 others. Eyewitnesses tell that when he walked into the classroom, he had the students, even those that were injured, stand up, and he asked them the question, are you a Christian? And those that said yes, he said, good, you're about to meet God, and shot them. Those that said no, he shot them in the leg. Every one of those that were killed identified themselves as Christians. Now the question for us this morning is, how do we deal with that? All of that stuff I just shared, how, how do we process that as a church, as individuals? How do we respond to that kind of stuff? How do we plan and prepare to live in a culture, in an environment that may be hostile to not only what we believe, but hostile to the very morals that we stand on? Are you prepared to live in that kind of culture? Because you see, the question that we're going to ask ourselves in the coming weeks is do we trust that the Bible in the the leading of the Holy Spirit is our supreme source of authority and conviction? Is this book what we are going to base our lives on? Is this book what we are going to base our convictions on? Are we going to go with whatever the popular opinion is? Are we going to go with whatever is most uh, popular at the time or whatever crowd that we're with is saying? Are we willing to go with with whatever the easiest path is? Are we going to stand on this book and what it stands for? And probably more importantly than that, the question for us is, what do we really believe? What are our convictions? And what are those convictions based on? And can you explain why you believe what you believe? You see, most of us believe what we believe because a pastor or a preacher or our parents told us what to believe. And what happens is when we begin to wrestle with the hard questions, we don't have any answers because we've never really wrestled with why we believe what we believe. And so God has led me, I believe, to go through this series, not just to talk about these topics that I think are going to be... um, 
controversial or, or informative, but to allow us to get to a place where you and I can examine why we believe what we believe. What are our convictions? What are we willing to stand on? And is the Word of God really the sole basis for our convictions and for our authority in our life? Because that's what's going to stand the test in the days ahead as we look at a changing culture. That's what's going to happen as we move forward. And understand, this is not a political series. I'm not going to be talking about politics because these issues are much deeper than politics. And some of these topics I'm going to talk about are going to be very uncomfortable to you. Some of them in the positions that I'm going to, to look at in the Word of God may make you angry because they're going to be positions that maybe you haven't been holding to or maybe you haven't examined in your life. And I think that's okay. You see, I want you in the next couple of weeks to wrestle with what you believe. I want you to, to get back to the Word of God and find out, like the Bereans, what the Word of God says and how you can apply that to your everyday life. You see, instead of just saying, this is what I believe because that's what I've always been told or that's what I've always heard, this is what I believe because the Word of God says it and the Holy Spirit has confirmed it in my heart. And for some of you, that's very uncomfortable because you've never done that. You've never been challenged. You've never been asked to wrestle because sadly in so many churches, and, and listen, I'll just be honest. I'm going to be honest through this whole series. Uh, as we examine ourselves and examine the church as a whole and examine the Christian culture that we have, for so many years, churches, pastors and teachers have told you, don't think. You're thinking too much. Somehow we've equated thinking with being wrong. And we've said, listen, just believe. Well, it's okay, just believe, but you've got to wrestle with those beliefs if they're going to firmly be established. Because what we see happens is we get young people that go to church for 17 years. And they can regurgitate the Bible and they can tell you verse after verse and they can tell you everything their youth minister told them or their Sunday school teacher told them or they learned in vacation Bible school but they never wrestled with why they believe what they believe. They go off to college and Professor Fuzzy Face in some biology class begins to tell them that the Bible has mistakes in it and errors and it's not true and that they can prove that the earth is this old and maybe you hold to a view that it's this old. And all of a sudden the foundations of what they held true is all of a sudden getting crumbled because they've never had to wrestle with the hard questions. And what we're seeing in our culture today is we have these things happening, whether it's uh, gay marriage, whether it's the sanctity of life, whether it's some of the other issues that we're going to talk about. And Christians don't know how to respond in a loving and kind, graceful manner, but speaking the truth, because we really don't know what we believe. And we get wrapped up into emotional discussions that devolve and do no one any good. See, in the past several weeks, I've heard a lot of parents and grandparents tell me that they're afraid for what type of nation, what type of country, what type of world that their kids are going to grow up in. They're afraid of, of what's going to happen in the days ahead. And, and it's easy to understand that emotion. If you turn on the TV, it's easy to get caught up in that. But you and I need to remember that fear does not come from God. That perfect faith always drives out fear. No matter what the polls say, no matter what the Supreme Court says, no matter what happened in an Oregon community college, no matter what's happening over in Libya and Tanzania and, and Afghanistan and Iraq, God is still in control. And He will remain in control. And we can't allow fear to drive us to do things that God hasn't called us to. 
And we need to focus not on what kind of nation we're going to, to allow our children to inherit because you can't really change that. Instead of worrying so much about what our kids are going to have to deal with in the culture that we're handing over to them, what we can make a difference in is investing in our kids by teaching them convictions that are based on biblical truth and how to live those convictions in a culture that is hostile to it. See, that we can change. That we can make a difference. And whenever we're tempted to get upset and despair about what's going on in America, we need to remember God never promised that the American church would triumph. God promised that the church would triumph. And while we may live in this country, we are residents of another world. And this culture in America may change. And listen, it breaks my heart as much as it does yours. Because I have young people. But we have got to begin to prepare now in our hearts how we can live the Word of God to make a difference. And so I'm hoping that this series will be able to do that. You know, we need to understand that really traditionally and historically, Christians have always lived in a culture that has been hostile towards its values. The Bible is full of of those that had to live, examples of people that had to live in a culture that was hostile to them. Moses had to go and stand up to, to Pharaoh in Egypt to allow the children to be released. Joseph, living there in Egypt, rising to a place of power in a pagan environment. Daniel in Babylon, in exile, rose to great prominence, but yet still wouldn't compromise his values. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego there in Babylon, not compromising their values. Elijah, Eliza, living in a corrupt kingdom, not willing to compromise their values. You see, the Bible is full of examples. In the New Testament, you, you don't remember that Jesus and the, the apostles and all of the early church leaders lived in one of the most pagan cultures that ever existed in the history. The Roman Empire makes America today look puritanical. It makes us look tame. They were so corrupt and so pagan, and yet that was the culture that the church exploded in. And so before we begin to, to get all up in arms and before we begin to worry, we need to remember that there has always been an example of the church rising against a culture that pushed back. In the recent history, recent all the way up to 1,500 years ago, 500 years ago, during the Reformation, as the church began to evolve, Christians were killed for everything from saying that you were saved by grace alone. Christians were killed for being baptized by immersion, something that we take for granted. 500 years ago, they would come and surround a group of Christians and kill them because they were baptized by immersion instead of sprinkled. You need to understand there is a, a history, even in America, in the United States history, 250 years ago, the national faith of the United States of America, when it was formed, was the Church of England, which we now call the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church. That was the official faith. When we passed the Declaration of Independence, that was the faith, which meant that if you were in North Carolina, if you were in Virginia, and you were a Baptist, you could not have your marriage recognized by the state because you were Baptist. Matter of fact, in many places in North Carolina and Virginia and South Carolina, they would not allow any churches in towns to be recognized and to meet unless they were Anglican, unless they were Church of England. 
And it wasn't until the Baptists in Virginia began to protest and the Danbury Baptists began to protest and, and they protested to James Madison and they protested to Thomas Jefferson and they began to look at what we now call the separation of church and state and their protest, their standing on their principles is what allowed the First Amendment to include the Establishment Clause and the Separation Clause that gives us the freedom to worship this morning because somebody was willing to stand up to a culture that was pushing against it. You see, you and I need to recognize that we have grown comfortable in America. Many people would say we've gotten spoiled because we haven't had any opposition. It's been easy to be a Christian in America. It's been easy to be a part of a church. Matter of fact, it's been the popular thing to do. We can't just continue to stick our head in the sand and hope for 1950 or 1970 again when the church was in its heyday because it's not coming back. And what's happened is in the, the time that the church in America has prospered and hadn't faced opposition and hadn't had to fight for its ability to stand and speak truth, we started fighting each other. We spent all our time the last 50 years tearing each other up because there was no other fights for us. And now we've grown so weakened, we don't know what to do when all of a sudden we start to face opposition. You see, it seems recently, and, and what I'm noticing how Christians are responding when faced with a change of culture is we respond in two ways today. And, and it's real easy to see. If you have Facebook, it amazes me. Uh, you know, the two things you should probably never do on Facebook is talk religion and talk politics. Because it's just not the, it's not the proper platform. Because everybody gets angry. And it always amazes me. Uh, you can see the two responses that you have in Christians just by watching what people post on Facebook. Because you see, the first response for most Christians is to fight. When something happens, man, we want to fight. We want to vocally get out there and defend and attack those that are pulling down what we believe is morally right. And, and man, you should look and read what some of the people say. And we do it in, in the environment. When somebody begins to talk about gay marriage, when somebody begins to talk about abortion, you have the, that group of people that's so willing and so um, vigilant and wanting to speak out that they're ready to fight. But I fear what happens in our zeal to fight is we allow our attitudes to take away the message of grace and love and peace that is leading us to fight in the first place. And instead of making a bridge to reaching people, we are building barriers and turning off the very people God's called us to reach. See, there are times to fight. I, I just told you, Moses fought Pharaoh. Jesus got in there against the religious leaders and called them whitewashed tombs. Peter, he fought against the authorities in Rome all the time. But there is a way to fight. And I'm afraid that so many people are so excited and willing to fight, they don't even recognize what they're fighting for. And we have become known more in Christianity today for what we are against than what we're for. If you don't believe me, go ask somebody that's not involved in church. Say Baptist, say Christian. And you'll begin to hear all the things that we are against. Why? Because we have made it a fight and a fight and a fight. And there are times that we are called to stand and fight. But we've got to do so very carefully. Most Christians, those that aren't fighting, are the ones who fall to the other extreme. We're the fleers. See, it's unfortunate that our responses are either fight or flee. And what I mean by fleers, we so don't want to offend people. We so don't want 
to get people angry at us. And so instead of engaging, we just retreat from it. We don't talk about it. We tell people, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to discuss that. Don't even bring that up. And and we walk away. Because we don't want to be known as as bigots or hateful or angry or whatever PC term they want to label at you when you begin to stand for truth. And so we just don't say anything. And we think by not saying anything, maybe as the video said, my lifestyle will speak loud. But the problem is, without some foundation, your lifestyle can't speak. And some people take it to the extreme. I mean, they separate themselves totally from the world. you got groups like the Amish and, and the Mennonites and the Quakers that their attitude is the culture is so bad, we're going to get totally away from the culture. And they've retreated and they've backed away from everything. And, and before you look at that and say, we don't do that, the church has done that in the last 15 years. We've built these little Christian subcultures where some people in the church don't know any people that are lost. You don't know anybody that would disagree with you. When you talk about gay marriage, then, then you, everybody you know already says that that's wrong. You don't know anybody on the other side because we, all we do is we've raised our kids in Christian schools or in our homes and we take them to Christian volleyball and Christian sports and, and we go to Christian grocery stores and we only listen to Christian music and all of our friends are people in our Christian small group and we don't have any interaction with anybody outside. You see, what we forget is we are called to engage the culture, not retreat from it. And what happens sometimes when we are silent on issues, and there is a time to be silent, just like there's a time to fight. But what happens many times is when we're silent, somehow we give off the indication that we accommodate their view, that it's okay. But by our silence, we're saying that we agree with them. So where is the happy medium? You know, I love... What Rick Warren said in a quote that got pushed around the internet, he said, Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you have to fear and hate them. The second is to love somebody means you have to agree with everything they believe and do. He says those two things are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. See, there's a time to be silent. There's a time to fight. I think what we've got to find is a third solution. And and what I'm going to do in the next couple of weeks is talk about what I'm calling we've got to lovingly engage. Because if you learned anything from Ephesians, I'm hoping that you learn that we are called to be a light in the darkness. We are called to be salt. We are called to go out and share and engage Jesus Christ. If you take the light out of the darkness, what hope is there for the darkness? I've said this for a long time, and listen, if God's told you to homeschool your kids, more power to you. God told you to take your kids to Christian school. I don't doubt that. But what's happened in the last 10 years is we've taken all of the light out of the public schools. You say, well, we've taken prayer out of school. No, we've taken the Christians out of the schools. And then we complain that there's darkness. You see, God has called you to penetrate the darkness, to be light in the darkness. And if we don't teach our kids how to be light in the darkness when they're 16 and 15, how do we expect them to do it when they're 30? You see, we are called to engage our culture. The only way that we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ is if we go out amongst those that need the gospel. 
Jesus prayed in John 17 when he was praying for his disciples. He said, Lord, I'm leaving him here behind me. They are going to be in the world, but they are not of the world. You see, we have to live in this lost world. We have to be a part of this culture. We don't have to do the things that the culture is declaring, but we've got to be a part of it. And so somehow we have got to learn how to lovingly engage those around us, if we're ever going to reach our world for Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? Well, I think Peter gives some help here in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, listen to what he says. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're still blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. That, that's foundational. He's saying this is what's foundational, the truth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. What's he saying? Be ready to speak up. Always be ready to share why you believe what you believe. Speak the truth. And you can't do that if you don't know what the truth is. If you don't have biblically-based convictions, you can't speak about the hope that you have. How can you communicate and explain it from a spiritual standpoint if you don't know what the truth is? You see, what happens is, because we don't know what we believe, we allow our discussions with someone in our culture to devolve to emotions and personal attacks, don't we? Someone we disagree with, we start losing ground because we really don't know what we believe, we really don't know how to back it up, we really don't know how to communicate, we just attack them personally. Or they attack you personally. Or it just escalates and becomes emotional. Peter's saying, you and I need to understand. We have got to have an answer. And the answer can't be, come to church. The answer can't be, I'll go check it out. The answer needs to be something that you've wrestled and discussed and and found conviction in so that you can share. This is why I have hope. He said, there is a time to stand. We're called to stand See, he's reminding us that the power to change hearts in found in emotion. You're not going to convince somebody. Matter of fact, it's not your job to change somebody's mind. It's not your job to convince them. That's the Holy Spirit's job. What is your job? Your job is to share the truth. And to do it as clearly and concisely as possible. See, Peter's saying it's not emotions that change hearts. What is it? It's truth. What did Jesus say? The truth is what sets you free. And when you begin to speak truth, the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to change hearts. But then listen to what he says. He says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those that you speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So what does he say? We are called to stand. We are called not necessarily to fight, but to speak up. But when you do speak up, do so with gentleness and wisdom. I love that. See, I'm not there to attack. I'm there to stand for truth. But as I stand for truth, I'm going to allow it to be peppered with grace and mercy and love, recognizing who I'm speaking to. He said, speak the truth. Always be willing to share the answer you have. But do it with kindness. Do it with respect. You don't have to be judgmental. You don't have to be accusative. You don't have to be attacking. You see, and listen, that doesn't come naturally. Because our first response is to get mad, right? 
our first response is to get angry. And it's okay to have righteous indignation. Listen, when I recognize that 376,000 babies were killed last year by Planned Parenthood alone, if that doesn't get you righteously indignant, if that doesn't break your heart, because it breaks God's heart, I don't care where you stand politically, it breaks God's heart. But you see, we can't allow that righteous anger to influence our speech. It needs to compel us to speak, but we need to allow our speech to become love, grace, mercy, and the truth. And he said, always do it with a clean conscience. You know what that means? That means that your life needs to back up your speech. See, your speech doesn't back up your life. Your life backs up your speech. So many people think, I'm going to live for Christ, I'm going to shine, and people are going to be drawn to me and want to know, and then all of a sudden I can speak. It almost never happens that way. Rarely, someone may see you at work and hear you, and they may come and ask you, but most of the time, people are listening to what we're saying, and then they're watching to see if what we're saying is being backed up in our life. He said, your actions are always going to be an exclamation point on what you say. You see, listen, when we don't know what we believe and we're not sure of our convictions, we end up allowing discussions to devolve to everything else but talking about what's important. That's what happens most of the time. Think about the last time you discussed gay marriage with someone. Think about the last time that you discussed abortion with someone. Was it a rational, reasonable discussion or was it a tax Was it emotionally charged? Because that's what happens when we can't communicate clearly how we're supposed to share. See, it's not a matter of you being right. Because it's not a matter of right and wrong. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to use you to share the truth, to shine the light. See, a lost and hurting world, listen to me, doesn't need us to beat them over the head doesn't need us to try to prove to them that we're right and they're wrong. It doesn't need us to try to tell them that we have all the answers. It needs us just to speak the truth in love, to be grace-oriented, to present love, to minister to one another, and to shine the light of Jesus so that as we shine that light, it becomes a light that penetrates the darkness and the lies that our culture is buying. For the next several weeks, I'm going to look at some specific ways you and I can build bridges to communication instead of barriers. Ways that we can talk about some of these topics without attacking, without them becoming political. But before we can do that, you're going to have to wrestle with what you believe and why. You're going to have to dig into the Word. You're going to have to to come up with some convictions that are based on more than what your parents told you. And that may mean you getting out of your comfort zone, which I know when you say that in church, everybody hates to hear it. We love to to talk about it, but none of us want to do it, right? You can say, oh, I'm open to change, Pastor. I'm young. No, you're not. You probably drive to church the same way every Sunday. Same roads, same ways that you come. Start driving a different way just for the fun of it. See how angry it makes you. 
You'll do it. You say, man, that other way is faster. Why am I doing this? Man, we hit traffic. I knew we'd hit traffic coming down. I should have taken the other way. Why? Because we get in a comfort zone. And we do the same thing with what we believe. And it just comes out of our mouth. And it's just easily coming out. Because we haven't wrestled with what we believe. And so when a professor in biology stands up and says, evolution is the key, we don't know how to respond to that. When someone stands up and said the world is 30 million years old and you've grown up in a church that believes in young earth and they've taught you that the world is only 6,000 to 10,000 years old, how are you going to discuss that? So instead, here's what, we, here's what we in the church, I mean, let's just be honest. The Bible says that I believe it, amen? And that's true. But do you know what the Bible says? Do you know why you believe it? You see, if we are going to engage a culture that is evolving and changing, devolving to us, that is totally changing to a place that is hostile to our beliefs, we are going to have to come at it with a loving engagement that still makes a difference in people's lives. We can't retreat. It's too valuable for us to reach this lost world. We can't remain silent. We've got to speak up. Why? Because around us, people are hurting and they're dying. And they're separated from God. And we have the message of hope and grace. You see, we need to see this as an exciting opportunity. This is a chance like never before for the church to rise up out of its complacency. For the church to stand up for, and be known for what it's about, what we stand for, not what we're against. You see, we stand for the sanctity of life. We stand for the preciousness of marriage. We stand for the truth and the power of the Holy Spirit to change and transform lives. We stand on this book and how this book can change people. Instead of we are against dancing and gambling and drinking and premarital sex. See, we just like to talk about what we're against. The world needs to hear what we're for and why we're for it. Because you see, the Bible says when that light begins to shine, that'll transform hearts. Listen to what Jesus said. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew Chapter 5. I'm going to read it from the Message Bible. I'm done. I want you to hear this. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. When that persecution drives you deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed. It's the end of the Beatitudes. Every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. Jesus talking. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company because my prophets and witnesses have always gotten into that same kind of trouble. But let me tell you why you're here. Chapter 5, verse 13. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of the earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? If you've lost your youthfulness, you'll end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You are here to be light, bringing out the God colors in a lost world. God's not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you a light bearer, don't you think I'm not going to hide you under a bucket? I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I put you on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. 
Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. Open yourself up to others. And by doing so, you'll prompt people to open themselves up to God. You see, we need to stop letting fear control us. We need to stop retreating. We need to stop allowing culture to dictate to us how we're going to respond. And instead, like Ephesians 6 says, we need to stand. But as we stand for the truth of the Word of God, we need to let our light shine so that others might see it. Engaging our culture. We're going to start with some of the most difficult topics but they're the ones that your friends and people are talking about every day. How can you use those things to sneak Jesus in? I hope you'll join us in the coming weeks. Shine. Engage. Always have a reason to share the hope that you have. Let's pray.